Are you scared of being ordinary and mediocre? As if that relegates you to the low achieving, boring, not living life to the fullest bucket. Hmm. Or maybe you're scared of failing, so you only do things that you're already good at. But secretly, you'd love to take more risks, ideally without looking cringy and embarrassing. Or maybe you're scared of success because it would mean that you're getting too big for your boots and a little bit wanky and full of yourself, so you dim your light and play it safe. If any of these conundrums have you nodding, you are in the right place. I'm doing a Q&A with author and clinical psychologist, Michaela Thomas. Michaela specializes in perfectionism and helping busy, stressed out people find balance over burnout. She also runs the Pause, purpose play podcast where I've been a guest. So go and listen to that one. We had a lot of fun. So before we dive in, welcome to Enough the Podcast. I'm Dr. Mandy Leto, your host and executive coach and recovering perfectionist and overachiever. This show is for you if your life looks shiny and successful on the outside, but inside you feel like a fakey pants fraud who's never quite good enough. You're driven by the need to keep achieving and acquiring, thinking one fine day you'll get to the promised land of good enoughness where you can finally sleep and accept yourself. Guaranteed, you're exhausted, though no one would ever know. Welcome. I'm glad you're here. So, Michaela, let's start with the question of why we're so afraid to be ordinary and mediocre. Oh, and um, by the way, there is some spicy language in this episode, so headphones if required. Ready? Let's dive in. I guess because we live in a society where good enough feels like failing where good enough is not good enough. Good enough feels like you're below average. And that's the funny thing with statistical averages, right? If you look at a, a bell curve where you have most people being in the middle of the curve, that's the average. And then you have outliers to each side, you know, the below average and the above average. You cannot have people in a statistical curve all be above average. It is not possible statistically. So someone has to be below average. But when we think about what that means, the idea of being below average to something, if that sparks a sense of fear, sparks a sense of shame, we can then think about what happened when we were growing up if we fell below average or if we were, quote unquote, just average. What happened? Was there an absence of praise? Was there an absence of joy within you? Did people notice? Did you even get outright punished or shamed for it? Then no wonder then that the idea of being average or below average gives a sense of fear into us. It's sort of like, oh my God, I can't go to that place because that's not good enough. And that's something I work with a lot with high striving individuals that it's okay to have a sense of ambition and want to go for those high milestones to be extraordinary but there will be things in your life which will not be extraordinary. There will be just ordinary. And that is okay too. And that's a huge learning curve. It's almost like a sensitization process. Like you sensitize yourself to pollen all of a sudden, instead of getting the allergic reaction that this is not enough, you then start to gently, gently, slowly, gradually over years, sensitize your body and your system to be okay with average in some areas of your life. Because if you want to be truly extraordinary and above average and excel, you need to tolerate that some areas of your life will not. Otherwise, you will burn out. And then you're not achieving any of the things you want to do. 
So there can be a sensitivity to certain things in terms of not being extraordinary. Like when it comes to, I don't know, I'll randomly choose something golf. It doesn't trigger me at all that I'm not extraordinary when it comes to golf, because I think I played once when I was 12 and (laughs) it, it doesn't trigger me. So if somebody said, Oh, you're, you're, you're really not enough when it comes to golf. Okay. Fair enough. But there are certain things that are very trigger prone areas or reactive areas. So when it comes, for example, to achievement or when it comes to, you know, having a tidy house or the way that I'm put together when I go out into the world. And I don't know, what are some, some of those reactive areas for you? Um, There's certain things I definitely don't really give a shit about, if I'm honest. And there's certain things that are very triggering. My parenting is a huge trigger oh, yeah. point for me because, because we hurt where we care is, is one of the things that Steve Hayes, the found, one of the founders of Acceptance and Commitment Therapy says, that we, we care about it. So that's why it hurts if we have the prospect that is going to fall below average or fall short of the standard we've perceived is the must have, you know, and must be uh, a really attuned, caring, attached, um, emotionally, you know, available present parent kind of thing. And even though I know consciously through all the research that good enough parenting is actually more helpful, where you're going to meet your child's needs about a third of the time and a third of the time you royally mess up and a third of the time you repair those messes. Uh, And that is what serves your child best in life, setting them up for being able to be a fully functioning adult rather than meeting their needs perfectly all the time. I can know that logically, but it still triggers me. I have to say that, you know, whenever I feel like I've messed up or I've not done what I wanted to do with my children, then I definitely feel that that's a trigger point because it means something to me. So golf probably holds no meaning or value to you. And why would we care about the things that hold no meaning or value? Now, there can be areas or domains of people uh, listening of their lives where they don't actually hold meaning or value, but it's attached to previous experiences of of maybe praise or punishment so that can still have been an arbitrary value attached to it like if you don't tidy your house properly maybe your mum would have gone of like mum my mum has occasionally done you know pulling the finger along a ledge and be like oh it's a bit dusty that kind of very innocent on surface level kind of comment can then have made you attach meaning to the domain of cleaning that oh my house must always be perfectly spotless before guests arrive, even though it stresses me out to the point of having arguments with my husband, you know, that kind of thing. This is an example rather than how it is for me. But these are the things I hear a lot. That is the the must and the even though. I must do this even though it's costing me an arm and a leg, even though it's impacting on my family or even though it's impacting on how I am with my children. And that's one of the things that you see a lot of with the striving and the pursuing of perfection that I must do it, even though it's costing me uh, exhaustion, stress, burnout, um, overwhelm, all of these things that we don't actually really want in our life. But the pressure to be perfect, the must is too strong for us to resist it. I shared a YouTube video with my teenage daughter this morning. In it, Cristiano Ronaldo, arguably the most talented soccer player in the world, wears a bearded disguise and a fat suit. I'll put the link in my show notes. It's really worth watching. He spends an hour in a Spanish square kicking a football around, doing this incredibly fancy footwork and trying to get people to engage. Like, kick the ball a little bit. 
Almost nobody did, except this little boy called Nicolas. And Ronaldo eventually picks up the ball, asks the boy's name, pulls out a Sharpie, and then peels off his bearded facial disguise. And the boy is just looking at him with these saucer eyes. All afternoon, Ronaldo had been doing his mind-blowing footwork with that ball, and nobody paid any attention. And within seconds of removing his disguise, he was mobbed by crowds with their phones out. There's so much to unpack in that video. And yes, seeing a famous person does weird things to some people, which is a whole other story. But what struck me was that as an ordinary, slightly plump guy, no one cared. It made me reflect on society's emphasis on appearances, on being remarkable, known, famous, and extraordinary. Social media is full of sleek kitchen renovations and Dwayne Johnson physiques. We revere accomplishment. So child prodigies playing Shostakovich with, uh, with no notes on the piano. Multi-medaled Olympians, New York Times bestsellers, gymnasts winning medals with broken bones in their feet. And I'm not trying to diminish any of those things. Those are extraordinary. But I can't help but wonder if this instills in us that ordinary bodies, ordinary skills and talents, and homes and accomplishments are comparatively dull and undesirable, maybe even unworthy. And on a less meta level, where else might this deep urge to avoid ordinariness and mediocrity come from? So I'm reflecting on me, but I'm going to invite you to think about your own upbringing. So as a child, I had well-intentioned family members who drove me to achieve. I had to do times tables drills until I cried. I was constantly being told by teachers that I had so much potential or that I was extraordinarily mature for my age. But there was little tolerance for failure and mediocrity or like for being an ordinary kid. And let's face it, a massive part of daily life is ordinariness. Very little of ordinary life is extraordinary. So the script is kind of internalized that extraordinary and remarkable feats equals worthiness. So if you need a peak state to feel enough or that other people are, you know, looking at you with, with acceptance and bestowing love on you, if you, if you need that to be enough as a kid... It's going to be a pretty miserable self-doubting existence whenever you're not in extraordinariness. So we're moving on to the next question. But if you want to go deeper into this fear of ordinariness and mediocrity, check out Catherine Gray's new book called The Unexpected Joy of the Ordinary. Next, I ask Michaela about what she would say to someone who's a perfectionist at work. I mean, I could try to speak to well-being. I can try to say striving for perfect burns you out because it does. I can try to say striving for perfect is going to cost you more than it's worth, but people probably don't listen to that. I could say you're going to be more well if you take a break. I could say if you look after yourself, it's going to be more sustainable for you. And I say all of those things, but what I found is the best way in with truly ambitious, high-striving individuals is to say, if you want to go to those places, you're more likely to do so if you do it sustainably. So you're actually more likely to follow your ambition without drowning in it if you do so sustainably. And perfectionism is not going to take you to that place. And don't get me wrong, it's a blessing and a curse. It's probably got you all the 
a lot of the successes you have in your life or the tick boxes you've had, you know, look at me, I've got a podcast, I've written a book, I've, you know, I can rile up my successes. But perfectionism isn't what got me there. You know, I'm sort of recovering from my perfectionism and being hardworking, being ambitious, being curious, being innovative, that's what got me there, being playful. But perfectionism is what stopped me opening those doors for a really long time. It took me, I think, five years before I wrote my book. And then probably you know, two years of actually writing it. But perfectionism was the thing that held me back from taking the step, from taking the plunge. Perfectionism is what's helped me overwork and procrastinate rather than create, um, to compare with others and despair rather than create. So if I speak to that part of you, if you're an ambitious individual who want to reach your goals, perfectionism is not going to help you reach them as well as sustainability. So striving for excellence is not the same as striving for perfection. And that's a really important distinction we make in the literature around perfectionism as a clinical problem. And perfectionism as a clinical problem is attached to depression, anxiety, stress, OCD, because you said compulsion. Yes, obsessive compulsive disorder. And none of those things are going to get you towards your ambitious goal. So I hope that that's a better way in that. Trust me on this one. If you want to reach your targets, I can, I can help you get there. That's what I do for a living. I've worked with CEOs, founders, you know, entrepreneurs, lawyers, doctors, and they're all very ambitious. But perfectionism holds you back, stops you from actually taking the plunge. And to use your example of the golf, that's probably okay because you've played golf like once, twice maybe. You know, you tried this. You can kind of think, that's fine to be rubbish at that because I've not tried it a lot. But perfectionists often hold themselves back from trying new things because they will be quote unquote rubbish at it, below average, above, you know, I can't be above average on it when as I start something new. And that can mean that you actually don't take risks and do stretchy things you need to do in order to reach your ambitious goals. So I can just reiterate it again. Yes, the good thing as a bonus is that you will be more well-rested and a, an overall nicer human being if you let go of your perfectionism. But let me just kind of go in there at that point again. You're more likely to reach your ambitious goals if you let go of perfect. And mics around the world dropped. <laughs> Boom. My next question is around increasing our appetite for failure by taking more risk. How can we loosen our white knuckle death grip on things needing to be a certain way or our fear of looking stupid if we fail? Well, I guess the, the first word that comes to mind for me is compassion. Being compassionate with yourself doesn't mean I'll be nice and nice and tell yourself that it's okay, you don't have to take that risk because they scare you. No, compassion says in a brave, courageous way saying, no wonder that that scares the living daylight out of you because the idea of failing is inconceivable. Through no fault of your own, through everything you've been through as a child, as a young adult, the failures you've faced, the rejections you've experienced, the abandonment, whatever it is, the fear of criticism you have, no wonder that all of those fears pull into the this moment right here when you're standing there about to jump off a cliff and you think, nah, no, no, I'd, I'd rather not because it's safer here. I'll just go closer to the wall and not go to the edge. And I guess that's the question of how safe is it? You know, what does safe mean for you? Is it to stay within your comfort zone at all times and never stretching it? 
because your inner critical voice tells you that that's not good enough. So it's not safe to be there either. It's safe nowhere. So I guess when we, we are worried about taking risks, we have to tell ourselves that the idea of success is built on failure. It's built on risks that you've taken and then fallen and then picked yourself up and then fallen again. And in the amount of times I've fallen flat on my face with things. You know, I, was, I talked to a friend about that the other day, how I put a, a workshop out and I sold exactly fuck all tickets, you know, zero tickets. So then I went, how do I make this a success? How do I make this worthwhile? How do I make this helpful rather than harmful for me? Not listening to the inner critical voice telling me that wasn't good enough. Actually, I gave away 10 spaces to women who needed it. And then that was in line with my values around actually helping people out in this time of grief and funk all around. There's lots of people who are experiencing parental burnout now after the summer holidays. So then I think, how do you, as an entrepreneur, for me, how do you bring this into a success? Well, there was learning from it. You know, there was there was lots of things I could evaluate from it. And the 10 people I gave it away to, there were 10 people who were now brought into my world that weren't there before. And they gave me lots of rich feedback and, you know, ideas around how I can do these things differently next time. And the one person who actually showed up live, you know, sitting there giving away 90 minutes of my time to someone for free is someone who made join my group coaching program. So it's never a waste. It's never a failure. It is just learning. And I know this is sort of spouting out Instagram crap, but this is based on, on research and evidence as well around performance, productivity, that if you are willing to make mistakes, if you're willing to face failure, you are more likely to succeed because you try, 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 and try again. If you try once and it doesn't work, and then you never do it again, how are you going to grow your skill set? How are you going to improve your performance? How are you going to increase your confidence? How are you going to increase your competence? None of that will happen when you hold yourself back because of the fear of failure. It's the distinction between understanding that logically mm -hmm. and actually, I don't know if it's a nervous system thing or whatever it is that in your body that it's okay to fail. And I think that comes up to a couple of things, trusting yourself, you know, what is the state that my body is in now? Can I, can, do I have the capacity to recover from this? And I think particularly those people who have grown up with perfectionist tendencies and do things that they're only good at <laughs> me included, uh, it, it just closed down so many other potential, you know, I've never tried go-karting for example, because it was just something I didn't think I would be good at. And lots of other sports or lots of other things that happen in the universe. I'm like, no, 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 I um, need to wash my hair. Sorry, I can't make it type of thing. And secretly yearning for more freedom. So it's this, it's a very particular kind of conundrum to try small things. That's what's been useful for me is try small things where failure is safe. So this podcast, for example, I had a really successful podcast in the past and trying something new and scrapping that and starting from scratch all of a sudden felt really scary and having really deep conversations. But the way I do that is I just pretend nobody's ever going to listen to them. So it's just, it's just me and the mic or me and the guest and the mic. And just imagine that this conversation is just the three of us. And, you know, then my team does something and it appears out in the world, but I'm not thinking about that right now. So that's kind of a way to fool that part of me. And another thing that I do is 
if we're sticking to podcasting, but this could be before anything, if I'm doing something where something's at stake and I want to increase my appetite for risk. So right before this episode, you'll see it on my Instagram stories. I play loud rock music. So today it was Billy Idol's Rebel Yell. And I dance around in my office and wave my arms and I get myself into that kind of biochemical state because I read somewhere that listening to loud, fast-paced, pumping music increases our appetite for risk. So I'm more likely to ask you juicy questions rather than playing it safe if I'm pumped up. So thank you, Billy Idol. Mm, Good shout out there. I think working with your body and your nervous system is so crucial because you're right there that people can believe what I'm saying logically and nod along to it. Yeah, yeah, of course, failure failure is learning and making mistakes is human and I should embrace risk, but then I don't want to. Like I can't, it's just like don't wanna, um, and that is you know what we describe as the the head and the heart lag, you know the the founder of compassion focused therapy Paul Gilbert talks about that as there's a kind of a delay between what you know logically in your brain and then how you sort of feel somatically if you were sure emotionally about it. So that sense of like oh no, that is much more of a, I guess. An instinctual, it's sort of, it's much more of a stopping you in your tracks kind of feeling. So then we can't address that with logic. You can't fight fire with fire. You can't go into that space with logic and reasoning. You have to go into that space with emotion and feeling. And this is why in compassion focused therapy and the kind of coaching I do as well, I work a lot with visualization, breath work, you know, things that trigger the soothing system, the inner part of your nervous system that is about you feeling safe and at ease, relaxed and soothed. And then we are in the space where we can take a new learning. That will then sink down to the heart level and you will start to innately feel that it's true to you, that you are worthwhile, that you are worthy of taking breaks or worthy of acting with uh, kindness for yourself. But what you were talking about there of putting on the music and sort of, I'm just going to pretend that nobody else is listening. This is the space I'm recording in. That's acting as if, and that's a behavioral strategy that we use a lot as well. Of I, You know, I don't believe that I'm worthwhile. I don't believe that I'm enough, but I'm going to act as if I am. And if I acted as if, if I believed I was enough, if I believed that I had everything it takes to take this risk, what would I be doing? Well, I would be doing X, Y, and Z. Well, then go and do it. You don't have to believe it at this point, but if you take that action, you will send a message to, I mean, we can talk about this on a neural pathway level, you will actually start to create new neural pathways in your brain. So almost like imagine that you're out in the woods and this well-trodden path that we, we've been on many times, which is I'm a piece of shit or I'm not good enough or other people are better. You know, you know, you know the route, right? We've all got it. All the perfectionists have these sort of negative self-talk roots in their brain. So what we want to do is to go out with a machete and, you know, get a new path out there. And that's going to feel really hard. You can have resistance. You're not going to want to be on that path. You want to go back onto your old path because it's familiar. And the brain loves familiarity. It's called pattern matching. We want to, we want everything to be as it's always been. Even though the new path might be better for you and lead to better things, I'm going to choose the old path. So what we do in therapy and in coaching is we do a competition of retrieval. Now that sounds really fancy for just saying, going to try to help your brain choose the other path. And the more times you choose the other path, even though you kind of want to go back to the old path, you tre- you can you know, tread a bit more on it. And the more trodden it gets, the more familiar that path becomes. So old path could be I'm a failure. New path could be I'm worthwhile, for instance. And the more we trod on the new path, acting as if it's true, 
the more that becomes the familiar route. And after rinse and repeat, then that becomes more second nature, which is the bit that kind of comes down into your heart level. This is second nature now that I am worthwhile. So to me this morning, you know, my second day of coming back from mat leave, rather than sitting straight down at the computer, I've did a five minute meditation because I've missed meditating. It's really hard to do that when you've got a baby with you constantly. I made myself a healthy smoothie. I actually drank my cup of tea instead of pouring it out because I was acting as if I'm worth while acting as if I'm worth those things worth being well and I've actually achieved a couple more things today than I thought I was going to do because I'm coming at it from a place of feeling rested safe and at ease I hope that makes sense to people listening that it's not about pushing through it's not about telling yourself off for having these thoughts of being a failure or thoughts of not being good enough. It's just like, ah, here it is again, that old path that I know so well. I've trodden on it so many times and it's not my fault. It is just there through all the things I've been through in life. But now I'm going to act as if this new path could be a possibility, could be an option. And maybe I can keep treading on that now. My final question for Michaela is around the fear of success. Are we afraid of success? What does it mean to be afraid of success? That always kind of blew my mind. But before we go there, it's really relevant for me to drop in a couple of points from Gay Hendricks's book, The Big Leap. And if you don't know The Big Leap, do yourself a favor and pick it up today. Gay talks about the four hidden barriers in our belief systems that block us from stepping into our fullest potential. So the first barrier is this feeling that we're fundamentally flawed, meaning that we allow ourselves to be fairly successful, but then when it kind of gets too much, we dim our light. So if you have a really big win, the voice in your head might say, okay, get back in your box. You don't deserve to be this happy. There's a quiz on my website called are you waiting for the other shoe to drop? So if you're somebody who gets a win, gets a book out there, buys a house, has a major achievement, and then the voice in your head says like, oh, you're getting, you're getting a bit much now, that might be the hidden barrier, is the belief that you're fundamentally flawed. The second hidden barrier is around disloyalty and abandonment, meaning if I expand and grow to my fullest potential, I'll be disloyal to my roots and leave people behind. So this might link to comments that you heard growing up like, don't get too big for your boots. Hmm. The third hidden barrier is that success means I'll be an even bigger burden. So that could be operating under the surface like if if i really expand and grow then my partner will have to carry even more of the burden around the house or i'll have to spend even less time with my children so the fourth one is the crime of outshining meaning if i expand to my fullest potential i will make fill in the blank look bad so maybe growing up you were a really gifted child and maybe you were accused of stealing the limelight. So the message gets ground in, win and achieve, but uh, don't enjoy it too much. Don't make a spectacle of yourself. Or how about this one? Know your place. So let's get back to Michaela. We're riffing on this experience of the fear of success. So Michaela is going to mention Mensa. And in case you don't know what Mensa is, it's the high IQ society for those people who score in the 98th percentile or higher. 
Okay, let's get back to Michaela. One of the big things that I see as well, and I felt to myself, is that fear of success, not just fear of failure, the fear of being really good at something. Because again, we kind of mentioned good girl conditioning and the patriarchal society we live in means that women aren't allowed to shine. Women aren't allowed to really burn bright and be good at something. And it Something I haven't talked about very much in public, but it's kind of a little shame point of mine. So I'll share it here because, you know, we're in good company, is that I used to be part of Mensa in Sweden. And I even got to the point of being the national intelligence tester for Mensa Sweden very briefly. And I think it was about 20 when I joined as a dare with the with, with an ex-boyfriend who thought he was the smartest person alive. And I took the test and he didn't dare to take the test and I got in. But the shame point is that when it came up in discussion at one point at uni, I was studying to be a psychologist at that point um, with one of my friends on the course. He was really, really good at football. She was in a women's football team. And we talked about something about excelling or being good at something. And she found out somehow that I was part of Mensa and she did a dig at me for it. You know, it's like, this isn't this just a club for people admiring each other and you know, just bragging and being boastful about how smart you are. And, you know, at, at no point would I have said anything about her being this part of this women's football club where you're admiring how fast you are at running or kicking the ball or being excellent at figuring out the 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 gameplay or whatever. But it made me leave Mensa. You know, it got to the point where I thought, I can't be part of this anymore. It triggered shame for me because maybe you think you are too big for your boots. So if you are successful or you're good at something, actually dimming your light and not daring to shine bright is something I see so much. And now in hindsight, I kind of wish I would have stayed there um, and said, you know, that's part of my CV, part of my you know, package I've got to offer is that I am proven in a test, uh, smarter than 98% of the population. Um, And it's something that I often hide because it feels like it's something that you should be ashamed of. That doesn't mean that I'm thinking I'm a better human being or more worthwhile than anyone else. It's just, I'm probably also sort of the lower 2% for height, which we've never actually met in person. But there are things you can be below average on and things you are above average. And I am the outlier in that statistical normal distribution curve, I am on the outlier for intelligence and I'm same outlier by the bottom for height. And I didn't choose that any more than I chose my intelligence. There are things you can do to further your intelligence, of course, but you are born into a genetic range of of sort of around 10 points of intelligence where you can go up or down in that range. But that's you. That's, you know, why I'm a short person with glasses and you've got a good brain on my shoulders. And I think that's been one of the things that I've held myself back with a lot because I've been not daring to shine bright using that intelligence, using that that bright mind that I have, um, because sometimes we fear success. Sometimes we fear being really good at what we do. So we go for a high, high excellence, we go for a high standard at some point. We also fear that there's so far to fall if it doesn't work out. So that was just a story I thought I would share because I've never talked about it in public. And I thought, if I don't talk about my shame memories on this podcast, where will I ever? <laughs> it's interesting that you said that. Something I've never just dug out of the bowels of my archives of shame, too, is something similar. So I was sitting in a group of students. I had a, a semester abroad or a couple of semesters abroad when I was doing my PhD. And 
I was sitting in this foreign country in this group, and there was an American professor who was leading us, and everybody was introducing themselves in the circle. And they were saying, you know, who they were and what university they came from and what they were studying. And when it was my turn, I introduced myself and I said, you know, I'm studying in England. And then it went on to the next person. And he came to talk to me afterwards. And he said, you didn't tell them that you're doing a PhD at Cambridge. Mm. And he said, that's false humility. Mm. And I felt so ashamed that because false humility is like the ultimate form of arrogance. <laughs> and it wasn't false humility, but I, I was so taken aback by being confronted by this professor that I respected. I was, I didn't want to be too big for my boots. It wasn't, it was not any of that, like, oh, I'm better than everybody here. And you've gone to some rinky dink universities. It wasn't arrogance at all. It was just mm. like, I didn't, I almost felt like I couldn't share that in that room, that it would, I don't even know what that was about. Like I'm sort of at a loss for words, but I felt the compounded shame of being accused that that was false humility. Mm. So not only had you quote unquote failed in putting yourself forward, but you also failed in being suitably humble and modest. So it's almost like you've got a double whammy of shame there that, you know, there was an attack and criticism on something that you were doing simply out of your shame of not wanting to sort of put yourself forward. And this, these things are also culturally and societally um, shaped as well and conditioned, you know, not only by the patriarchy, but also what uh, cultural norms there are in your own country. I mean, I grew up in Scandinavia in Sweden, and there is a saying which is called the Jante law, which means that you shouldn't think that you are anything. This comes from a sort of a, a Norwegian statement, but it's so true in Scandinavia. And it made me really struggle when I moved to London and I was in job interviews in, in the UK in like inner city London, cutthroat services, and it's still national health service. You think how cutthroat could it be? But it really was. And the feedback I got was like, well, we can see here on your CV that you clearly overqualified for this role. You know, you're a qualified clinical psychologist for coming at an entry trainee level CBT therapist because obviously they didn't recognize my qualifications from Sweden to begin with. It took a little while before I had the professional bodies recognize it. But they're like, we can see you're overqualified. But why aren't you saying so in the interview? Why aren't you pointing to all your different things you can do? And because in Sweden, you'd go into a job interview saying, I'm eager to learn. I'm a good team player. I'm here to grow. Or, you know, you kind of say, yes, I've done these things, but you would not go and be like, I'm going to be the best part at this. I am really awesome at that. You just don't enhance yourself that way. So it was a steep learning curve for me. And I think that's, again, steeped in shame, definitely in the shame of, you know, bringing yourself out to the, to the front there where you say, I'm really good at and it's something I never learned to do because it's seen as immodest. It's seen as boastful. And again, too big for your boost. You, boots. You shouldn't think that you are anything. Um, and that gentle law still influences me now. That you know, I'm no doubt going to sit with shame listening back to this interview afterwards thinking, oh my God, how did you dare talking about being a Mensa? Um, and it's we just have to sit with it because the thing about shame is that it, it makes you hide. It makes you pull away from connection with other people. So I'm really trying to be like, what little shame nugget can I throw out? What little thing of imperfection can I throw out? Because that is how I lead with example, how I'm embodying everything that I 
teach and that I practice and showing that this is how I lead in a kind of an authentic leadership where I show people that, yes, you can live a life that is more meaningful when you also mess up a bit, when you're also a bit rough around the edges sometimes. I ask every guest to leave a brick of wisdom, whatever may have jiggled loose, because these conversations are not scripted. I just trust my instinct that we're going to go where we're going to go. So whatever's come up for you, Michaela, of what you want to leave with a listener right now, what would you say? You know what? I know so many people get triggered by the whole be kind to yourself. So I'm going to leave the wisdom of allow yourself to really struggle with being kind to yourself, allowing yourself to be triggered by it, to be afraid of it, to resist it, to not want it, and then act as if you could. Act as if you could be someone who is that kind of person, someone who is kind to themselves, whatever that looks like. So what would that mean? You know, giving yourself a bit of slack when you have an off day. Does that mean taking one meeting off the off your off your calendar when you're really knackered or cancelling something? What would someone who was able to be kind to themselves do? You don't have to like it. You don't have to kind of look at all these Instagram posts of like self-love and think, oh, I should just do that. Know that this can feel like an alien subject. It can feel like a foreign language, and that's okay. Find Michaela at thethomasconnection.co.uk where you'll find out about her book, her podcast, and links to all her socials. She has a new group coaching program and I asked her to tell us what it's all about. So the masterclass, How to Burn Bright Without Burning Out, is for ambitious working mothers who put pressure on themselves to be perfect. But as a result, they hold themselves back. They don't take those risks or they overthink, they overcheck and they overwork. So it's the outcome will be that you will learn ways of following your ambition without drowning in it so that you can reach your stretchy goals without becoming overstretched. Thank you, Michaela. If this episode jingled your bells, please share it with someone else who would benefit. And if you're seriously revved up, your Apple and Spotify reviews honestly make me break out in spontaneous dance moves. Thank you so much. Keep them coming. Let's do this all again in two weeks.